Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about the brutal death of Juliette Merrill. It was a crime of passion, committed by her boyfriend, investigated by the police and convicted in a court of law. And although the case is now closed, the details of her life and death are a little sketchy, with one vital clue almost erased forever. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details, and as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 67, The Missing Pieces of Juliet Merrill. Today, I'm standing on Gosfield Street, W1. Two streets east of the flat where Martin Vic Magnusson was killed by a cowardly billionaire's son. Two streets southwest of the bloody love rat Louis Voisin. Five doors down from the blackout ripper's third victim, Margaret Florence Lowe. And just three streets south of Maple Church, the blackout ripper's first possible murder. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Gosfield Street is a dull little side street with no redeemable features. It's a thin, one-way street with two tight paths and flanked on both sides by an unbroken row of six-story buildings which block out the sun. There's no grass, no animals, no people and no art. If you're lucky, you might see an embarrassingly quaffered poodle, a homeless man digging through the bins and yelling, Hummus! What the f*** is hummus? and a black-suited ex-BBC executive shuffling his way to Portland Place to barge into yet another meeting he wasn't invited to, to attend a lunch he has no plans to pay for, 
to claim all manner of crap at the taxpayer's expense, and to give an opinion no one asked for, in a building he no longer works at, as the staff are too afraid to ask for his security pass. Thankfully, this drab little shithole at the arse end of Oxford Circus is punctuated by two excellent places, the Yorkshire Grey Public House and Sergio's Pizzeria. But Gosfield Street is Yawnsville. It's a soulless street full of mansion flats and drab offices for a brand photographers, some business-to-business software bots and a Moroccan airline. I only know that as I looked it up on Google Maps. And although someone is currently paying a pretty price to live in flat 5 at 35 Gosfield Street, unless they listen to this, they won't be aware. But just like in the flat opposite, that this was once the scene of a bloody murder. As it was here, on Thursday the 5th of April 1934, that Juliet Merrill was brutally stabbed to death and yet an important piece of her life would almost be lost forever. Juliet Merrill was born Juliette Louise Chantreau on the 30th of March 1899, the eldest of five children to Louise, a housewife, and Eugene, an accountant. As a middle-class family, living in a tall townhouse in Clamart, a rural town in the southwest suburbs of Paris. Her upbringing was stable, if predictable. As like most women, born in an unfair era, it was inconceivable to think of her earning a living wage off her own back. Her life was limited to two options, marriage and motherhood in privilege, or a lonely barren spinsterhood in poverty. With her happiness not a priority, her personal choices sidelined, and burdened by no sense of self-belief, except what she could finagle from a love-struck man simply to survive. Thankfully, being pretty, petite and popular, in terms of husbands, Juliet could take her pick of the crop. In 1916, Juliet married a Belgian army officer called Jean-Claude Marcotti, solid husband material who was handsome, educated and wealthy, who had a bright career, a row of medals and a military pension. 16-year-old Juliet's future was secure and best of all, she was in love. In 1918, a few weeks shy of the armistice, Jean-Claude was crippled, blinded and shell-shocked by a bomb blast. Badly disfigured, although his loving wife would nurse her disabled husband for the next six years. In March 1925, Jean-Claude succumbed to his injuries and Juliet was left a widow. Gripped by loneliness, loss and crying out for love, seeking a better life for herself and aided by her late husband's pension, although her English was poor, Juliet moved to London. The next four years are a blank, as with a rent paid in cash, no savings, no employer, and no proof of income, she practically didn't exist, until she remarried. On the 7th of April 1929, Juliet married Arthur Johnson Merrill, 
a prosperous civil servant in the Ministry of Labour, who had a car, a bank account and a house in Hampstead. As with her beloved Jean-Claude, her future was secure. But this time, she had married her second husband for money and not love. On the 24th of January 1930, having been conceived on their honeymoon, Juliet gave birth to a baby girl. But by then, their marriage was over, and by mutual agreement, they parted. Living on a dwindling army pension and Arthur's meagre support, in November 1933, as an unemployed widowed single mother, 34-year-old Juliet and her infant daughter moved into a small three-roomed flat at 35 Gosfield Street. With the grimy street, a far cry from her prosperous Parisian upbringing, her age increasing, her beauty fading, and burdened by the scandal of her dubious income whispered amongst her prying neighbours, Juliet's life began to unravel. And yet, in this flat, five months later, she would be brutally stabbed to death, having met her lover, her boyfriend, and her killer. Eric Russell was unwanted and unloved. In the spring of 1904, a lone young lady named Amelia Russell fled her family home in South Africa and sailed 8,500 miles to the English port of Southampton. She was tired, weak and hungry. With a round bundle under her arm and hidden by baggy clothes, one in her belly. Too terrified to return home to her Catholic parents, too ashamed of the stigma of spawning a bastard child, and knowing such a scandal would cut her off from her family's prosperity, Amelia got work as a maid for Mrs Waters in the village of Apsley Guys, Bedfordshire. On the 12th of July 1904, the inevitable happened. And with no tears, love or joy, Eric was born. With dark curly hair, deep brown eyes and a chubby little body whose colour was unfairly described as swarthy, as the illegitimate offspring of a black father and a white mother, Eric was a stark symbol of their seedy drunken affair. Amelia didn't want him, and neither did Mrs Waters. But being broke, the landlady saw an opportunity to fleece a desperate young lady from a well-to-do family. Age two, a vivid memory was seared forever in Eric's brain. Sat on the dusty floor of a solicitor's office, the wailing toddler held his arms wide for a hug that never came. And having been given up for adoption, both women bickered over how much the boy was worth, as if he was the last piece of meat in a market. And as Amelia returned home to South Africa, a screaming Eric was left with Mrs Waters. Raised by Mrs Waters, she never hugged him, she never kissed him, and she never loved him. Eric was her paycheck, and although he should have been renamed Eric Waters, he was stuck with the surname of Russell, a cruel reminder of the burdened mother who had abandoned him. 
Eric's childhood was an unhappy one. Being unloved and ignored, he was traded as a cheap commodity and his life was worth little more than a few pounds. And although he was calm, loving and placid, as a sad little boy, desperate for affection, whenever money and love were uttered in the same sentence, as deep dark feelings rose within him, Eric would erupt into violent and uncontrollable rages. Believing his foster mother never saw him as a son, and that to her he was nothing more than a salary, his greatest fear was confirmed when age 16, the money stopped and Mrs. Waters left. Eric was frightened, alone and heartbroken. But being strong-willed, he didn't give up. Seeking a better life, on the 9th of August 1921, Eric enlisted in the Merchant Navy. With a solid character and his service record furnished with four good conduct badges, after 12 years' service in Malaya and Malta, Eric was promoted to first-class stoker, earning a modest wage of £100 a year. As a jovial young man, he lived for the ship's camaraderie. But being stuck year after year on an ocean-bound trawler, being lonely, shy and a little hesitant to fall in love for fear of being rejected once again, Eric often frequented prostitutes. And yet, on the 29th of October 1933, given 48 hours shore leave, as the lovesick Eric headed into the West End, he met a single mum called Juliet. Being besotted by the pretty French brunette, for the next five months, he would lavish his beloved with gifts, smother her face with kisses, and send her passionate letters of love. Eric was infatuated with Juliet. And then, he stabbed her to death. In the beating heart of London's West End, having been abandoned, two lonely people had found love. Seeing the couple side by side, her a slim, elegant and elfin-like lady, who loved flowers, poetry and dance. And him, a stocky naval stoker with tattooed arms, coarse skin and dirty nails. There was no denying that Juliet was out of his league. Unlike her former husbands, Eric wasn't a handsome army officer or a wealthy civil servant, but a mixed-race bastard with a basic education and a broken nose who shoveled coal in the ship's furnace for a paltry pittance. But what he gave her was love. Being smitten, they saw each other often, as Eric booked two days shore leave every few weeks. And when they were apart, although her English was poor, they wrote. On the 13th of November 1933, Juliet wrote, Eric, darling, I have been in the hairdressing all afternoon to make my hair pretty for you. I have a little headache, but I regret very much that you are not here tonight to keep me in your arms. I hope the time will be passed quickly and united us again. Write to me soon, we? Oui? Darling lover, 
Think little about your Juliet before you fall asleep tonight, will you? Received in big kisses for you, your little Juliet. With every letter dripping with affection, slathered with longing, and signed with a wet lipstick kiss, Eric and Juliet's passion was poured onto every page. And sometimes, it got so steamy, Juliet's ravenous allure drove the sex-starved seamen wild with desire. On the 4th of March, 1934, Juliet wrote, Hello, darling. I have not heard anything since a long time. Did you forget little Juliet? Last week, I had a wonderful time. My girlfriend from Paris have been in London. We make whoopee several times. She left yesterday. I am feel lonely again. Darling, come soon. You are always in my heart. Yours, Juliet. On Monday the 2nd of April 1934, with their hearts throbbing, their passions racing, and their loins aching for each other's touch, Eric booked five days surely, desperate to see his beloved Juliet. But having whined, dined, and spoiled her rotten, in the last five months, Eric had blown his yearly wage. After two steamy nights together, although he promised to stay on the Wednesday night too, with nothing in his pockets but fresh air and lint, Needing to get another shift in, Eric returned to his ship. Feeling snubbed, Juliet didn't waste a single second to pine for her lost lover, as living the life of a kept woman, who was popular, pretty, and never alone, as a string of admirers with bulging wallets lined up at her door. That night, like most nights, Juliet was entertained by another man. Thursday the 5th of April 1934 was Juliet's last day alive. With the relationship having grown a little rocky and their sex life interspersed by spats, having ran out of cash, at 10.30am that morning, Eric entered Harvey and Thompson's, a pawnbroker's on Waterloo Road, and reluctantly pawned his precious 14 karat gold watch for a pound. Smartly dressed in a blue serge suit, a dark overcoat and a black bowler hat. Clutching a bunch of flowers, a box of chocolates and his last 30 shillings, barely enough to cover the couple's lunch, Eric headed to Juliet's flat at 35 Gosfield Street. Situated on the corner of Langham Street, 35 Gosfield Street is a six-storey red and brown bricked mansion block with wrought iron railings and a single black entrance door to the ten flats above. Being mid-morning and mid-week, except for a few locals, the street was quiet and empty. Eric was tired, as having worked a double shift, he had slept for a little, and with his ship being docked two hours south in Portsmouth, he had caught the early train, and all to see his beloved Juliet. So as Eric ascended the cold stone stairs, to his left, he knocked on the familiar black door of flat five. For an unemployed single woman on a dwindling widow's pension, 
Juliet lived well. As in a spacious three-bedroom flat with its own bath, telephone and wireless radio. Being raised in privilege, she had become accustomed to a certain style of living. Opening the door, a groggy and grumpy Juliet stood, her blue eyes sleepy, her soft hair ruffled, and her mottled pink pyjamas creased. And reluctantly, she let him in. Sensing her obvious annoyance, having been snubbed the night before, Eric profusely apologised and pleaded poverty, proffering her the flowers and chocolates and offering her his last thirty shillings. For him, it was all he had. But for her, it wasn't enough. So as the mixed-race coal shoveler stuttered a volley of feeble excuses at the fiery French beauty, being out of her league and flat broke, Juliet's love was gone. And in a petulant Gallic fit, as Juliet stomped into the rose-pink bedroom, her slippers crushed his small box of shoddy chocolates and trampled his wilted bunch of pathetic poses. As she screamed, No! I see you no more again! I have rich men who want their little Juliet! And with that, he was dumped. It was a simple rejection, which anyone else would have brushed off with a door slammed, a mid-digit raised, and a volley of immature expletives. Especially for Eric, who was so calm, loving, and placid. But being treated like a cheap commodity, as Juliet screamed about money and love in the same sentence, her hurtful words echoed that day in the solicitor's office, as two heartless women bickered and bartered over the cost of a crying little boy. And as deep dark feelings rose within him, being rejected once again, inside Eric, something snapped. With the curtains shut, nothing was seen. But several neighbours heard the incident. Emily Brandon across the street, Mrs. Jerez in flat seven, and Stanley Bryant, a decorator working one floor below. They all heard Eric shout, If I can't have you, none of your rich friends will. And then there were screams, followed by silence. Juliet was still breathing, but only just. And through a swollen slit in her one good eye, Eric stood over her, his suit, feet and face drenched in her warm, sticky blood. Shocked at his own brutality, Eric fled, and at the junction of Riding House Street and Great Portland Street, he flagged down PC Ronald Rushmere. The constable taken aback, seeing the bloodied man cry, Help! I've killed a woman! According to the police report, Eric was calm, helpful and cooperative. Stemming the wound from his bloody right hand with a hanky, Eric ushered PC Rushmere towards the bedroom, stating, She's in there. That's what I did it with. As lying on the floor, at the foot of the bed, 34-year-old Juliet Louise Merrill was dead. Described by Detective Sergeant Nichols as a horrific, angry and brutal attack, in a 12-foot radius around her slump body, her blood had splashed and splattered. 
across the carpets and curtains, the walls and door, the bed and the bedside lamp, circled by a trail of men's size nine footprints. And halfway up her body, hanging in the bedclothes, they found an eight-inch kitchen knife. With bruising to the front and fingernail marks to the back of her neck, consistent with a large man's right hand, Sir Bernard Spilsbury confirmed that someone had attempted to strangle her, but gave up. Still alive and conscious, Juliet was beaten. Her disfigured head and face was a patchwork of twenty wounds, including thick swollen bruises to her nose, cheeks and eyes, deep open gashes to her scalp, several fractures, and a break which caused her skull to cave in. As her furious killer rained down multiple violent blows with a blunt heavy object, leaving a portion of her dark matted hair thick with blood and stuck to Eric's finger and the murder weapon. Juliet survived for almost ten minutes, but having lost three pints of blood, she died of shock. On Wednesday the 6th of June 1934, Eric Russell stood trial at the Old Bailey, on the charge of murder. With none of the evidence disputed, his insanity plea rejected, and several experts cross-examined, including his foster mother, Mrs. Waters. Having retired for 21 minutes, the jury returned and found Eric Russell guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, and the case was closed. And then, on the 2nd of July, 2018, a third party, somehow associated with either the victim or the culprit, went to court, and under Section 38 of the Freedom of Information Act, legally had parts of the file redacted, so that at least for the next 20 years no one could read what had been removed. Files are often redacted, with the offending details scored out with thick black boxes. Sometimes it's a word, a name or a date, a line, a paragraph or even a page. It's usually something totally irrelevant. But in this case, almost a hundred pages had been edited or removed. But why? Everything you've just heard was taken from that file, and it was enough to tell you that story. And yet, as I dug deeper, I realised that although the crime scene photos, the pathologist's report, and Eric's original statement were all missing, what those inky black boxes hid were the missing pieces of Juliet Merrill. The first piece, her job. Juliet was an unskilled and unemployed single woman, surviving on a widow's pension. And yet she lived well and was never without. It was suggested that she was a prostitute, as in the court transcripts, although there are several references to men friends, late nights, and her income unflatteringly described as tradings, a question was asked in court and only one word was redacted. The judge asked, have you ever heard of a man loving a word redacted who hated the mode of life they were leading? So whether she was simply a kept woman or a prostitute, 
we may never know. The second piece, the knife. Entering flat five at 35 Gosfield Street, Eric stated to PC Rushmere, She's in there. That's what I did it with. Upon which the police found the body of Juliet Merrill, and halfway up her body, hanging in the bedclothes, an eight-inch knife taken from her kitchen. Eric's bloodied shoes show a clear path from the bedroom to the kitchen, and the deep lacerations to his right hand are consistent with a knife of that size. So we assume that is the murder weapon. But if it is, why does the word knife not appear in any witness statement or autopsy report, except where it was found? And why would the type of murder weapon used be redacted unless it is significant? The third piece, Juliet's injuries. Eric said he repeatedly stabbed her in the head with a knife, and her autopsy confirmed she had at least 20 injuries, including lacerations, fractures, and a break to her skull. And yet, although large sections of Sir Bernard Spilsbury's autopsy report were redacted, which is highly unusual, never once does he state that she was stabbed with a long, sharp knife. Instead, he clearly states that she was attacked by multiple violent blows with a blunt, heavy object. The fourth piece, Eric's injuries. Eric had deep lacerations to his hand, consistent with the knife. And yet, who did it was redacted, what did it was redacted, and how it happened was redacted. So if the knife was the murder weapon, but the autopsy says that Juliet was hit by a blunt heavy object, Eric would have had to have beaten her using the blunt handle of the knife, whilst clutching the sharp blade in his balled up fist, which explains her injuries and the cuts to his hand. But why would anyone hold a knife that way? Why stab someone in a way which risks their own fingers being severed off? It makes no sense at all. And most baffling of all is the fifth and final missing piece. What the witnesses heard. Emily Brandon, Mrs. Jurez and Stanley Brandt all confirm they heard Eric shout, If I can't have you... None of your rich friends will. Followed by screams and silence. The typical things you would expect to hear if someone had witnessed a murder. And yet, what else they heard was redacted from all of their statements. But why? If it wasn't a shout or a scream, what else could it be? If it was something innocent, why remove it? If Juliet was a prostitute, then maybe these were sex sounds. But if there was another man, why was no one else seen leaving the flat except Eric? Strangely, a third party is suspiciously missing from every statement. She knew Juliet, she lived with Juliet, and she loved Juliet. If she was there, she would have seen the killer. If she was there, she would have seen the weapon. And if she was there, that would explain why her details were erased. On the 24th of January 1930, 
Four years prior, Juliet gave birth to a baby girl. There is no evidence of adoption. There is no reference to a babysitter. The baby's father hadn't seen them since February, and Juliet's nearest relative lived in Paris. Which leaves us with three questions about the details which were redacted. Having had her head bashed in, did this heavy blunt object belong to Juliet's daughter? If it wasn't screams or shouts, was what the witnesses heard a child crying? And with no crime scene photos and no reference to a cot, did Juliet share her bed with her baby? As if she did, was Juliet's four-year-old daughter lying next to her mother when she was murdered? That we may never know. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you're Murky Myler, stay tuned for more thrilling shenanigans as I open some doors and maybe a window. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Mysteries and Urban Legends and True Crime Sweden. Hey guys, do you like Mysteries and Urban Legends? Do you like creepy stories and unsolved true crime? Then join us every Tuesday and Saturday at Mysteries and Urban Legends and get to the bottom of weird urban legends and spooky mysteries. Hi, I'm Pernilla, the host and creator of True Crime Sweden, a podcast that brings you crazy, scary and unbelievable crime stories from the peaceful country of Sweden. By listening to True Crime Sweden, you get to hear cases that you haven't ever heard about before, and at the same time you learn something about how the legal system works in another part of the world. All the stories are told with great respect for the victims and their families. It's a one-woman show, no banter, just me telling you a scary bedtime story. And I end each episode with a little fun fact about Sweden, something that is highly appreciated by my listeners. If this sounds interesting, head over to your podcast provider of choice and search for True Crime Sweden. I hope to see you! Bye, or as we say in Sweden, hey door. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Carl Davies, Nina Miller, Annette Somerville, and Louisa Timothy, who all get an envelope of goodies, as well as ebooks, videos. And this particular episode will be delivered four days early to all Patreon supporters as a special thank you. Wahoo! Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Da, 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 da. Switch on phone. Oh, don't need to switch on phone. There we go. Oh, there it is. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. How are we? You're all good. So I thought I switched my phone off at the start, but I didn't. I, I just flight moded it, which is always good to do. If you're a podcaster out there, you should always put your phone on flight mode. I've listened to a couple of podcasts, and you can hear in the background it goes. It's like, please just turn off your phone if you're recording your podcast. It's not difficult. Anyway. I'm going to open some windows and doors. As just mentioned, opening windows and doors. Uh, uh, hopefully just then. Hopefully you might have just heard an advert. That would be nice. I seem to be having no adverts at the moment, which is a bit annoying. Uh, our good friends at Acast. Hello, Mac. Um, even though last month I had my best month ever in, term, in terms of downloads, it was up, up, normally up about 10% a month. It was up 20%. I really pushed up 20% uh, my adverts were down 50% which doesn't make sense so it was a bit of a even though I worked my ass off it was a bit of a crap month uh, when, it, when you add up the cost I worked out I, I was earning like less than a pound an hour uh, not that I earn a lot off this anyway 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 that's that that's by the by so how are we all we all good we all good and doing things and oh Powering th- I was powering through that episode a little bit because um, part of the Waterways Agency, they, they put some uh, a floating pontoon opposite me. Yeah, they put it in there last night. It's like, it's like 100 foot long. It's like loads of grey boxes and they all float and you, you, can, you can put them on the water and you can kind of, you can use them to get, uh, it's, it's normally kind of for maintenance work and they put it one opposite me, but then they started moving them halfway through my record. And it's a really noisy little boat that they're using. It goes, it's really annoying. So, uh, so I, it disrupted some of the record. So I'm slightly off kilter now. Uh, so I'm just going to make a cup of tea. Tea with a bit of demerara sugar. Using uh, cubed sugar and almond milk. There we go, pop that there. Right, good, let's get back. Let's get back to uh, where we were. So, I'm still where I was where I was when I recorded last week's episode, still in the same place. Uh, it's quite nice here, it's quite peaceful, it's easy to get into town-ish, it's not too bad, it's only about an hour into town on a train in the tube. Uh, there's loads of ducks, there's loads of coots, 
loads of swans it's all because it's, it's breeding season so they've all got the little babies out uh but also uh there's monk jack out in the woods as well and they're quite they're like little deers but um but they have a really weird kind of call it's never like like that you know a high-pitched kind of noise that uh some deers might make or even that sound more like a sheep these are are like an old man with emphysemia it's like it's like uh, they're little but they sound like they're going uh, and sometimes it's a little bit cute but not when you're trying to sleep and outside your door you can just hear someone going uh, so that's the the monk jack they're quite nice they're quite sweet uh so what's happening this weekend so it's a friday uh gearing up friday today recording hopefully going to try and power through editing today and next week's episode is always already done this is the week after's episode so i'm i'm going to do a slight re-edit on the uh sedu dirasuba episode uh today even that's that's already done there's something i want to change about it uh, and then uh, I'll do this episode Then I'm editing tomorrow as well. I'm going to try and power through it because then Sunday I've got my walk and then Sunday evening we've got the Generation uh, Generation Y and the They Walk Among Us meetup on Sunday and then I'm doing the, the big walk for anyone who's booked onto that on Monday. That's the, the, the Murder Mile walk but also you get to meet Gen Y and They Walk Among Us and uh, I think there's some other podcasts coming as well. And then we got another London meetup on the, on the Monday. So Monday evening, and then Tuesday I'm in Scotland. Oh God! And then to do round trip to go and sort out stuff for my grant, and then Wednesday come back, and then hopefully if I can make it back, there's a beer festival. Oh, so I'm trying to power through stuff at the moment, trying to get this done. Ah, uh, uh, looking at my kettle. I think I've got a couple of minutes. Turn off light. Don't want to waste electricity. So, uh, I'm at the moment just to let you know, I'm working on a. Uh, a lot of people have been on my walk and they enjoy it and it goes really well. Currently, currently 68th best walk in London. Uh, 68th best tour in London out of a, uh, 1,090, which is good. That's not bad considering I started right at the bottom uh, about three years ago. And I have no experience in tourism. But you know what? You do something that you enjoy and then it hopefully people seem to enjoy it and it works. So um, a lot of people have said, are you going to do another walk? And it's I, I could do. But the problem is uh, a lot of what I realised is that when I come across uh, new cases, I always go, yeah, I could put that in the new walk. And then I think to myself, hmm, do I do a five minute talk on the walk about it or do I save it for an episode and really go in deep and give it the time it deserves? And to be honest, the podcast kind of wins it every time. Uh, and also like these walks they take about nine months to really research and and plan get right and then they take about another year to a year and a half to really hone down and get get all the kinks out of it um so i'm probably not going to do another murder mile style walk but what what i'm working on at the moment is um what i tend to do is on my walk i I do introduce people to locations because the the walk is very different to the podcast so what i try and do is go this is my walk and then if you if if at the start you say i listen to the podcast I, i point out locations to you but we don't visit them so what i'm thinking about doing is just doing like a um a kind of a walk just for those of you who listen to the podcast so it won't be as kind of script it won't be scripted like the other one it won't be uh here's listening to to a story because you already know the story joe if you listen to the podcast kettle's about to go any second i'm looking at what i'm going to do it uh so it won't be scripted like the other ones what it'll be is kind of a, a a more of a casual nice walk around all of the locations 
Uh, I'll bring a book with me which has got all the uh, crime scene photos in it. Uh, there'll be some more detail, hopefully some more details that I won't tell you on the podcast or things you might have forgotten. Uh, it's a chance to kind of have a bit of a Q&A with me. Um, uh, if you haven't listened to the episode, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown of what it is. But really, it's just, just uh, kind of a casual, nice casual walk and a bit of a dawdle through Soho and Fitzrovia and places like that. And the idea is, even if you've been on it once, I'm hoping that because it's not... Oh, spilling my tea. Because it's not heavily structured and it's a bit of a chat and I can, you know, most of it is in my head so I can wing it. The idea is, you know, if you've been on the walk once and then I see that you've come on it again, I can just adapt it. Or as the podcast changes and new new uh, locations come on board, I could just add that into the walk. Uh, I thought that might be something interesting. So I'm working on that at the moment. Uh, <clears throat> I've got my notebook out. I'm working out how to do it. Um, I think what I might do is like just do one a month. And then if they go well, I- increase them. Uh, but could could just be a laugh. It, it, the idea is that you know we can have a lot more fun. If you've been on my walk, it's kind of you have to listen to the story and you know then ask me questions afterwards. Whereas this can be we turn up and we, you know we have a lot of fun with it. You know, and it, hopefully this can be a tour that can evolve over time. And you know what, uh, and it'll be one of those ones as well where you know if we turn up one day and people go oh we've done so I will go okay sod it let's go to Covent Garden and we'll just go to Covent Garden for like two hours just find some locations maybe I could show you some locations that I'm working on at the moment so that's what I'm working on at the moment it's kind of a new murder mile walk but uh, what I'm trying to do is work out how to define it because the, the murder mile walk I have at the moment is really good and it gets all the five star reviews which is great but what I don't want to do is to set this one up and have people who've never listened to the podcast come on the walk not understand it and then me get one star reviews and go you kept talking about his podcast and uh, I've never heard it and it's like I know you had to listen to it first you so uh, I'm just trying to make sure that I don't sabotage what I've already done I want to make sure that they're very distinct and different and work out how to separate them Uh, so that's that Uh, next week's episode I think I mentioned this last week uh, will be the meander mile Uh, this is going to be well I mean you'll you'll hear it when we we kick off with it Uh, it's going to be something different this will be another one so this is kind of making this a little bit more fun for me uh helping me recoup some time because uh, i'm slightly running out of time with these at the moment i've done t- uh what have you had you've had 10 episodes technically 11 episodes because you're a two-parter so I've, i'll bash you that i thought they went really well they're all very nice but i'm slightly running out of time now because they're all taking a little bit longer to do so these the the uh meander mile hopefully same as extra mile same as a uh, mini mile i kind of designed it to keep you interested something different so you don't get bored something different so i don't get bored but also they give me a chance to recoup some time and i might even give myself a, a day off as well uh so i think i'm going to do uh, a soho based one so i'll, I'll do you a little a walk around soho so it'll just be kind of free flowing and uh little bit of fun we'll have a giggle uh and then i'm in carlisle next week so i might do one in carlisle but i haven't quite decided i haven't done the research for it yet and i need to need to get it done i might do one in brighton because i fancy a day off and i I think uh as the summer's good i might go to brighton uh 
what else am I doing? Uh, I'm doing one in Rye because we've got Barbie. Hello, Barbie and Joe. Uh, when I come to do Barbie and Joe's, uh, come to do Barbie and Joe's wedding, that makes me sound like a, I'm the I'm going to be officiating there. Of course, I'm not. Tom Tom Baker is going to be officiating. We all know that. Um, but when I go there, I'm, uh, you know, there's some there's some interesting murders there. So I'm going to do you a little walk around Rye, which is a historic town uh, down near near the south coast, but not quite on the south coast. Uh, so I, I'm, I'll do a couple of those every so often, just to mix things up a bit. Just so, you, just, just so we all don't get bored of Murder Mile. There's nothing worse than getting bored. So uh, that's that. That's the admin out of the way. Oh dear. Right. Onwards and upwards. A uh, cup of tea sitting here. Lovely. No biscuits at the moment. Um, I haven't had a biscuit for a couple of days. I haven't had any cake for a week. I know. Because I had tonsillitis last week. And I'm over the tonsillitis now, which is good. I've had me amoxicillin, and that really cooled me up. I had a lot of ice cream for that, so I put on a little bit of chunkage. Uh, so this week, I, I decided to be a little bit healthier. So no biscuits. Uh, I have had. I've got my uh, um, uh, rice crackers and, and hummus. Uh, in the mornings, I have me me muesli uh, to keep me regular. I'm getting old now. Lunch is an apple, and then the evenings I have uh, leeks uh, with kippers. It sounds it sounds unusual, but it's really nice. It's just fresh leeks. Uh, oh, I put some I put some garden peas in there as well, and uh, some onions at the start, and then I add in kippers afterwards, and it balances out really nice. It's a really nice meal in its own right, and it's got everything you need in it as well. Uh, it's really tasty, so um, that's what I've been having all week, and I feel really good now as well. I haven't had any. Uh, I weaned myself off diet coke a couple of weeks ago, which was good, uh, and I haven't had chocolate for a good couple of days as well, which is my other addiction. So yeah, no cake, no chocolate, no diet coke. Uh, and I don't drink that much anyway uh, either. Oh. Hence the uh, uh, beer festival next week. Oh yes, right. Okay, let's get down with this case. Let's get down to the details. What time we got? Checking my time. Right. Um, so this was another case that I pulled out of the National Archives. Uh, as you know, what I love to do is I, I just uh, find a case. I work out where the where the location if if it's W one or wherever. As long as it's in the West End. Uh, and I just pull out the file. Um, sometimes immediately you can see whether it's worthwhile. One of the one of the files, there was a murder on uh, Air Street, which is a, a conduit street between uh, Regent Street and Piccadilly. And I thought, oh, that would be perfect. It's a nice little street. But when I opened it up, it was like four pages long. And I was like, oh, there's nothing here. I Literally, and the, the case was really dull as well. Uh, so I dumped it. But this one, it was three three files. And I thought, oh, this could be quite interesting. And it was on Gosfield Street, uh, a few doors down from Blackout Ripper's third victim. So I thought, this could be interesting. Uh, started reading it. Uh, and then about 20, 30 pages in, I started noticing occasional words redacted, which is fine. That happens quite a lot. You open up a file... You see the big black marks. Well, what what it is is they take out the page, um, they photocopy it, they they black it out, and then they put in the replaced copy. So you, so the original thing's not blacked out, but the original pages are hidden elsewhere in a secret file. But what you're seeing is a photocopy of the page, but with sections redacted, blacked out. So you can't see what it is. You can't you can't flip it over and see what the handwriting is. It just it it's you know it doesn't exist. Uh, so that happens a lot. That's not a problem. I'm kind of used to that now. Normally, it's kind of it's something legal. It's something like you know a case that was never resolved, or or someone doesn't want their name in reference to this. Although they're not normally associated with it, so which is why it's a third party association. So it's kind of you know 
it's not really a problem most of the time this is kind of something that i look at and i go what could it be oh this is what it probably is okay that's fine i normally fudge my way around it or as what happens i just ignore it i just go this is irrelevant to the case i'm just going to bin it um sometimes it's annoying like i think you mentioned i may have mentioned before about the two i was trying to do the story about the two greek men who uh had a knife fight in on old compton street what's missing from that file is the details about their girlfriend I think I found another file where it might be in, so I might be able to track that down. But because her details are missing and they were redacted out of the file, that leaves a big hole in that file. And I think that's the key, that's the heart of the story. So for me, that's really frustrating. I'm still working on that. But sometimes it's something really irrelevant. Anyway, with this this one I was going through and I was going, odd words deleted, odd lines, maybe a paragraph here and there. And I thought, that's fine, you know, three files it was probably about 200 pages, 300 pages deep. I was like, fine, I'll just keep reading that. Um, and then I got to the end of the file. I'd pretty much concocted, pieced all the story together. And I thought, well, everything was there. Do you know, they didn't take anything out because it was shocking. Do you know, there's no crime scene photos there. So it wasn't horrific. Do you know, we've had horrific photos before. Uh, we had pretty much all the background details to the culprit and the victim. Do you know, everything was there. And I, I thought, well, what have they taken out? That's really frustrating. So um, that's what intrigued me. So obviously someone had, someone had come in uh, 2nd of July, the year before, which is around the time that I was in there as well, and the file had been redacted. So uh, there's another one in there at the moment which someone has taken out, and that's currently being redacted. redacted and uh, But, oh, hopefully that's as interesting. I thought this was really intriguing. So, uh, so... Um, I've added this here. This was going to be the original ending to this episode. Uh, oh, the, this was a little bit. I'd added the section, but I took it out because I felt it. I, I over-egged the pudding a bit. But this was... After the bit you've just heard, this was how it was going to end. Uh, the unedited details of this case are held in the National Archives for another 20 years by orders of English law. No one can see it and no one can discuss it. And although whoever redacted the files did an incredibly thorough job to protect the identity of the innocent, on a line, on a page, on one line, on one page, in one file, <coughs> excuse me, in one file, I found the detail they were trying to hide, and that was the name of Juliet's baby. If she is alive today, she would be almost ninety, hopefully with a husband, kids, and grandkids, having had a good career, a happy life. And I hope no memory of this horrible event. And having gone to great lengths to hide, and having gone to great length, and having gone to great lengths to hide the truth about such a traumatic moment in her life, with it clearly proving distressing, even eighty-six years later, although I discovered the missing piece of Juliet Merrill, they have my word that I shall never reveal it. Mm. There you go. So, uh, so uh, what actually happened was I was going through all the files, trying to work out. I was like, what? I st when I started researching it, and I was in uh, the archives. What I do is I put everything into sections. So, that, so when I, f if I go through um, someone's witness statement and they say someone was five for eight, I put it in there. And if they go, they're like bingo, I put it in there. Do you know, I start compiling. That's why I know so many little details about so many different people is I go through all the witness statements very carefully and I find these little tiny details and then I start compiling a big picture of, you know, the person, the people involved. Uh, where was I going with that? Um, oh, yeah, but um, so um, 
yeah, there were, I was trying to work out what the pieces were missing, and it was why, you know, uh, why were the details about the knife missing? Why were the details about his injuries and her injuries missing? Do you know, why have they redacted these? About what, why have they redacted what the witnesses heard? Because if you witness a murder, it's going to be shouts or screams. So why redact that? So it has to be something else. The murder weapon, it has to be something else. So this got me going. But also they redacted a lot about the third party, which I, as I went through, I worked out must have, must have been a daughter. Because it can't be anyone else. And these are all the details that are redacted in there. Um, all of the details about the daughter was redacted except on one page uh i saw it there and i was like that's it that's why that's why they were removing it was actually um quite often you get duplicate uh, copies of things inside the file and when i looked inside the file i found an original statement and then i found a redacted statement which is really kind of interesting so i put them side by side and i was like that's what they've done they've taken out her any reference to her daughter uh so um i deliberately haven't mentioned obviously she's gone to court or her family have gone to court deliberately to um not have her name in there i'm standing by that Do you know that's that's her wishes she wouldn't want her name out there so uh i haven't mentioned it here uh and i've also noted notified the national archives uh of the mistake Unfortunately, I can't remember what page it was on because uh, it's not numbered. But I have said to them, this is this is there. And uh, they haven't replied yet, but hopefully uh, they will correct that. A um, couple of these. Oh, I'm going to have a slurp of tea. OK, I know people don't like slurps, but here we go. Big slurp. Oh, cup of tea. Best words in the world. Cup of tea. Uh, some details were missing from this story. I took them out because sometimes it throws throws you off. But uh uh, this was the health details of about Eric Russell. Now, uh, his health wasn't particularly good. He was a little bit stocky. Um, Travelled around the, around the world a lot. He wasn't uh, didn't eat particularly well. Um, as mentioned, he regularly visited prostitutes. Uh, now, let's see if I can find this in. Um, let me just go into my my uh, files. Juliet Merrill. I got a lot of files out of the National Archives. Oh no, Mike, what have you done? Don't say you've deleted them. Oh, bumholes. I think I have. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, upload it onto um onto the social onto the old social media. But what I did was I found his health report from the Navy and it was fascinating. So he had a lot of sickness. Uh, in uh, 1921, he had three days off for, uh, owing to Qatar. Uh, his Qatar came back recurrently over the years. Uh, and because he visited a lot of prostitutes, and these were the days, obviously, uh, before a lot of people would go, oh, let's use condoms. Um, he had recurrent bouts of genital sores, scabies, and gonorrhea. In fact, between 1925 and 1931, he had 12 courses of gonorrhea and penile sores. Mm. I find that I find that I did his whole medical report. I I, I remember posting it. Uh, God, when would this be? Uh, February time in, on on one of the social medias, and I was like, "Ooh, look at this!" But yeah, I'll post that to you. You can have a look at it. Um, he uh, he didn't have a police record, but he was known to the Portsmouth City Police as he had a few violent and drunken outbursts. It was written down, but he wasn't reported. For, he wasn't uh, uh, charged with it. Uh, the the I mentioned in there there were a couple of letters. Uh, we had a few of them that um, 
uh, Eric and Juliet sent to each other. I, I slightly edited them for time, but I thought I'd read you, them to you fully. I won't do the voice. Uh, uh, Juliet sent him a letter on the 4th of March 1934 saying, Hello, darling. Hello, darling. How are you? Uh, obviously, there was a lot of kind of uh, fr- frou-frou kind of in the letter. So I kind of cut that out and just got down to the kind of nitty gritty about the relationship. But this this is the, the letter almost in, in its entirety. Uh, Hello, darling. Uh, this is from Juliet to Eric. Hello, darling. How are you? You? What arrived is you. What that means, I have no idea. Um, I have not heard anything since a long time! Exclamation mark. Two exclamation marks. Um... Why do people use exclamation marks? I never understand that. When people send you a message and they go like, like to me, they go, hello, Mike, exclamation mark. That's not hello, Mike. It's hello, Mike. It's like, <laughs> why do why do people do that? You don't need to put an exclamation mark there. Excla- exclam- not an exclamation point, an exclamation mark. Why? Do you got to, you got to do it in the right place. It's a shout thing. It's a shout thing. Anyway, onwards. Uh, uh, and I and and I am feel sorry. Did you forget Juliet? Last week I had a wonderful time. My girlfriend from Paris have been in London. We make whoopee several times. <sighs> she left yesterday for Paris, and believe me, I am feel very sorry. I am feel very lonely again. I hope you are very well, and I also hope to see you soon, darling. Come soon, if you are free. With great pleasure, I will see you again. I am waiting for the wireless today at five o'clock. I am happy to have me because I feel so lonely. Uh, darling, write me soon. You are always in my heart. Yours, Juliet. You can see why I edited it down. <laughs> um, second letter. Uh, there was loads of letters, but um, these were just the two that were in the file, uh, which was dated the 13th of November, 1933. Eric, darling, I hope you feel better. I am very sorry to write to you immediately because you have forgot your Chinese pocket money. Obviously, I think because Eric was travelling, as we said, to uh, Malaya and places like that. So she's calling it the Chinese pocket money. Uh, unless he was off to China after this. We don't know. Uh, I've just found it now. I keep it for you until Thursday. Darling, I am very tired. I have been in the hairdressing all afternoon to make my hair pretty for you. And I still have a little head- headache. However, I regret very much that you are not here tonight for me to keep you in, keep me in, in your arms. I hope the time will be passed quickly and and united us again. Darling, write to me soon and try to phone. I have been today in the company. We don't know what that means. And me phone will be transferred until three days. But it's not sure. Anyway, Thursday, you and me. We? Darling lover, I must leave you. Thinking about your little Juliet just before you sleep every night, will you? Received in big kisses here for you, your Juliet. And at the end, she signs off. Excuse me, bad English and me pencil. I am not right correctly. Obviously, obviously. Uh, didn't mention about his arrest because I was trying to get. A, some, sometimes when you get when you're writing the story, sometimes you don't want all the the kind of the plot that goes with it. It's like you know, if someone's committed a murder, you don't want to go through all the the stuff about the arrest unless it's really important so uh he was taken to tottenham court road police station which is in c division upon arrest uh boat going past noisy boat with a really heavy engine it's a tiny boat it's just he's gunning it too fast idiot yeah and he's sitting down as well oh just no and looking at his phone idiot idiot 
upon his arrest, Eric Russell was in possession of one pound and eight shillings uh, and seven pence. So that would be around the thirty shillings that he had. So, he, so, he, so actually, he didn't give her the money. He offered it to her, but she didn't take it, or whatever. Uh, his clothes, clothing bore bloodstains. His clothes were taken to be used as evidence. He was charged on the 5th of April 1934 in Tottenham Court Road Police Station. He appeared at Marlborough Street Police Court, which we've heard about before, uh, and was on remand until the 13th of April 1934. Legal aid was granted. He was charged at 7.30 that evening at Tottenham Court Road Police Station, and he made a statement. That statement was missing. Uh, a lot of it was redacted. Which is really annoying. So when I opened up the file, I think I've got a picture of the. I might have a picture of the. Uh, is it here? Yeah, I might upload that online. I've got a picture. I've got a uh, plan that the police did, a sketch of what the rooms look like, uh, and I've got his statement. But chunks of it are redacted, and it is the sections that I mentioned about that are redacted. So another boat going past. Is he sitting on his ass? Yep, he's sitting on his ass, and he's on his phone, and he's going too fast. Just there you go. My boat is being battered around. <sighs> if I, if I had a, if I had a rifle, if I had a rifle. Um, <clears throat> uh, in his statement, he said that he had known Juliet uh, since the previous year. He would stayed with her in November and spent nearly a hundred pounds on her. Uh, so it's implied that she was a prostitute then. Although, as we heard, as we heard. Uh, last week in the uh, no the week before in the uh, the uh, the unfortunate Mr Johnson episode with the um, the American guy who thought he was uh, Jimmy Cagney, there's a real grey area there of prostitution. So you've got the you've got the ladies who are the prostitutes who kind of meet you on the street and take you back for sex, and you're there for like less than an hour. You pay a fiver and then you bugger off. But then there's a grey area there where there would be ladies who were kind of. Um, want you to become like their temporary girlfriend and you go back with them and you'd have sex with them but you'd stay with them for five days so you'd pay for the full five days that you'd pay for the hotel you'd pay for all the meals uh they'd have sex with you but but it's a real gray area of prostitution so uh, the many kind of uh ladies especially around wartime are kind of doing that for the for the uh uh the airmen and people like that because obviously if you've got 48 uh, hours shore leave you know you can hire a lady for you know those 48 hours she becomes your girlfriend you buy all the drinks you pay for the hotel she gets a free she gets free meals she gets free hotel and she gets paid for her time so uh so there's a lot more about that so i think there's a lot more about that that's going on in this in this story uh he admits to being infatuated with her and that he'd been jealous of her when he had seen her with other men uh, he went to see her on Monday the 2nd of April 1934 and stayed until the afternoon of Wednesday the 4th of April. Then he left her promising to return at 7 o'clock, but obviously he didn't. He went back to work because he needed to earn some more money. Thursday the 5th of April, he pawned his watch for a pound. Um, <clears throat> he now had searched... Th- see, this isn't his words. I actually had to, I had to kind of skim it because there was a lot missing uh he pawned his watch i've already put some stuff in there he bought it for a fiver he wanted to sell it for three pounds he only got a pound for it um uh, uh, um when she mentioned about the money in the flat uh he said that something snapped inside his brain he went into the next room which would be the kitchen took off his coat then picked up the first thing he could see which was he says like a big knife i hit her with it 
and said, if I can't see you again, none of your rich friends will, or something to that effect. He kept striking her with it. Suddenly he seemed to come to his senses and telephoned the exchange to call the police. I removed this from the story because it kind of threw things off. But he he, uh, he actually did call the police. Did I? No, no, I, I did put it on the story. Uh, unless I edited it out. Obviously, I haven't edited the story yet. Uh, and he kept saying throughout, poor girl, I didn't mean to kill her. She was very good to me. Uh, he was cautioned, he was cooperative, and he kept saying, I fully understand. Uh, the autopsy sub- was carried out by Sir Bernard Billsbury at Paddington Mortuary uh, on the 6th of April. Cause of death was concussion and shock caused by multiple injuries to the head. The pathology report, as mentioned, was removed and heavily redacted. Um, now, he said there were no signs of strangulation, um, although he this changes later on. He retained a portion of the hair to see if it matched those found and stuck to the uh, what he referred to as the instrument which was the murder weapon and to Eric Russell's finger uh, the result of our inquiries will no doubt no doubt undoubtedly prove that Mrs Merrill obtained and then some words have been redacted uh, there's about I worked out there's a space for about five or six letters um and we have no idea what it what it was that she obtained. Uh, both of her hands were covered in blood. She had 20 injuries, mainly to the head, lash, uh, lacerations to the scalp, bruise on her right cheek, small marks on her lower jaw, which looked like fingernails. Lower part of her neck were, uh, were covered in abrasions, which may have been caused by a necklace, but he couldn't confirm that. Um, so Bernard Billsbury said that someone had been trying to strangle her by pressing her on her neck, but they had then given up. She had several fractures caused by multiple blows, uh, multiple violent blows by a blunt, heavy object. Uh, oh, this was interesting. Uh, so she tried at the Old Bailey, as mentioned, uh, arraigned on the 6th of June, 1934. Uh, the facts were not disputed. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Didham, oh Didham, uh, of the uh, the barracks in Portsmouth where uh, Russell was um, posted, he came up and gave evidence there. Uh, as mentioned, so did uh, Eric Russell, Russell's foster mum, which we'll go into. Uh, at the trial on the 6th of June, Mr Justice Hawks, Hawks asked, Eric Russell, you are charged with the murder of Juliet Lewis Merrill on the 5th, 5th of April 1934. Are you guilty or not guilty? Eric Russell replied, guilty, my lord. The Justice, uh, Justice Hawks asked, what did you say? Eric Russell consults his uh, counsel, which was Mr Morgan Griffiths, who replied on his behalf, he pleads not guilty. And Eric Russell reiterated, not guilty, my lord. Uh, there was an insanity plea, as mentioned. Uh, uh, Dr Gallisher, a, me- uh, a mental specialist uh, at the Northumberland Hosp- Hospital, uh, can't speak, I'm running out of air, uh, was interviewed Eric on the 25th of May 1934 in Brixton Prison, where he was uh, on remand. Uh, and he stated the prisoner had a repressed memory, and at the time he killed the woman, this repressed memory returned to his conscious mind, implying that the repressed memory of being in the solicitor's office age two has caused him to lose the love that he had. For, uh, caught, oh, brain is going. You know what I'm saying. It's uh, the, the same memory of being being uh, rejected by his mother and his stepmother and being treated as a commodity. The same thing had happened when he was with Juliet. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Glacier, 
is his name, sorry, suggested that the murder itself was similar in nature to his ta- his attack age two on his foster mother. Now, um, I'll mention this slightly shortly. Um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? It was uh, Mrs. Waters. So the foster mother, she came and gave evidence and she said... Um, he had a little piggy bank like a little money box that was there that he would put money in to kind of save up for things that he needed um and one day the foster mother decided that she wanted to take some money out of it a kind of a loan for herself and he absolutely erupted with that you know um love and money in the same sentence all that was going on he erupted he attacked her he was only about two years old but apparently absolutely lost his shit but in court when uh the foster mother was mentioning this eric actually said i beg your pardon my lord i wish to stop this at once uh and it said that eric did not want this to be be discussed his counsel states after consultation with eric apparently this is distasteful to him my lord and i will leave it so but that's that that's all that was really said unfortunately a lot of the transcripts were heavily edited so uh uh, there's very little there that I could kind of uh, glean from that. Glean, good word. Uh, Eric served time in prison. Uh, he was at Pentonville. Uh, he would have served about 15 years. Uh, his prison records aren't available, so I can't get any more. Uh, to the best of details, uh, it, it appears that he died in 1964. So that would be 30 years after the murder. Uh, and all it says, if this is the right Eric Russell, because the problem is... It's hard to tell. Uh, he seemed to die in the same borough as Pentonville. So he may have died in prison. We don't know. We don't know. But you know what? Story's over, so who cares? Job done. Right, that's me done. Did you enjoy that? Was that good? Oh, I am now going to do some laundry, which is very exciting. Well done, Michael. You're going to do some laundry. I'm going to go and wash some pants. I'm going to wash some jeans, some towels, some bed sheets. Oh, life doesn't get any better. Whoa. So that's me done uh so we'll have uh a meander mile next week probably a meander mile next week and then we'll come back with hopefully 10 more murder miles uh and then that will see me through to around the time of barbie and joe's wedding i want to try and make sure i have time off for uh, around that uh and then two more meander miles if they go well and then we'll have some oh dear lord we'll have some mini miles and then that will bring us to the to the build up to the end of the year where we will have the uh, multi-part special which i'm still working on i've got all the details i'm just trying to find trying to find the story within the story i'll get there i'll get there eventually it's just mm, trying to work out what it is i want to say about it anyway that's that done uh hope you enjoyed that i'm gonna now uh do my laundry power through this do some editing and then that's that done uh, have yourself a good day uh best wishes and tatty bye hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.